iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hello, this is the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wizencroft. And on this Thursday, I think we'll discuss the curious case of Harry Maguire. What's not quite clicking for England, but working so well for Scotland and Wales. We'll also talk Project Big picture it's been dismissed but have the big clubs actually shown that they wield the power in English football we'll also look ahead uh, to the weekend's football with a highly anticipated derby on Merseyside and the old firm as well to help me through all of that Jonathan Northcroft Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson hello guys how are you doing hello Hugh how magnificent magnificent I wonder <laughs> why the Scots me the Scots too. Are we joyous. are on the march with Clarky's army <laughs> <laughs> we, will, we will talk about Steve Clark and Scotland Gregor calm yourself I think we'll have to start with England and you'll enjoy this even more I think um, lacking creativity for one they were beaten at 1-0 by Denmark at home a Christian Eriksen penalty, but Harry Maguire saw red for two yellow cards after just half an hour of that match. We'll come to Harry Maguire and whether he should still be in the team for both club and country, in fact, in a few moments' time. But let's start with a a discussion point over the last few days for England fans in general, which is creativity in the team. The likes of Jack Grealish, who really impressed against Wales and then wasn't selected and wasn't played uh, in the game against Belgium or the game against Denmark last night. Just on Gareth Southgate and this idea of creativity in England side, do, do you believe that he has enough as a manager to get the best out of England creatively? Yes, absolutely. I think the, there's, there's lots wrong with football. The idea that there's anything wrong with Gareth Southgate as England manager is not one of them. Um, I know Johnny has talked before on this podcast that England have delusions of grandeur. I think this is a classic case of that. Uh, you can't you can't dismiss what he achieved at the World Cup only two years ago. I think he is in a difficult moment right now in terms of working out who he trusts. I think he's gone a little bit away from picking players on form, which hasn't helped. I think there is definitely a case for Jack Grealish being in the team, but people complaining and the uproar surrounding it is is just it is delusional a little bit for me. And I, I would say that this is again another one of those classic England cases where the morning after a game, there's plenty to talk about. But I found myself watching the game, and for the first twenty minutes, I thought England didn't weren't that bad. You know, they were passing it around. I thought Kyle Walker on the you know that right side of a back three looked good. His distribution was excellent. Reese James was overlapping really well and providing an outlet on the right. Maybe on the left side of the pitch, didn't look balanced. But I, you know, I, I I've talked before on this podcast that I like the back three system. I think it can work. The idea, and yes, there are tweaks to be made. Yes, there is a strong case for trying to get Jack Grealish in the side. The idea that Gareth Southgate is not the man for the job is is bonkers for me. Um, he he definitely deserves to take the team to the Euros and I trust him and back him to get it right in the end. I agree about Southgate. I think it's interesting. The interesting thing about England is is a kind of a, a battle between fitting your, your most exciting and attacking and talented footballers into the into the starting eleven and maintaining some semblance of kind of security because you look at the, def- the defence has always been England's, well, for the last couple of years has been England's biggest Achilles heel and it's almost like he's trying to 
make up for that by the system he plays and then by also playing two two midfielders who are basically defensive minded, which means that there's there's fewer spaces left for the attacking players, which is the best, you know, where England are, are best stocked. So, um, you know, that's a kind of, I think that's a, a balance that he's still trying to work out. Um, you can understand it because, you know, when you say, is, is Southgate the right man? He's not, you know, he's not a, one of the world's leading coaches and he doesn't get that long with the players. So the starting point has to be being difficult to beat, which Scotland have become recently. I'll just, we'll, we'll come on to that later though. Um, uh, so that has to be the starting point, I think, in international football for you to be a success. And after that, you know, there, there is obviously work to be done uh, sort of in fitting in the best players. And, you know, Johnny wrote about, I'm sure you can speak about it now, how someone like Jack Grealish, who's suddenly been spoken of as a saviour in a new Gaza, he's going to find it hard to fit in to, to this England squad in that system. He is. I mean, I, look, I think, I think the background to this would be... Um, You've got to remember, England had a had a really good Nations League qualifying campaign after the World Cup. It looked like Gareth had progressed the team. He'd got all these exciting attacking players in. Then there was a collapse against Holland there, uh, and and that that was a real slap in the face, I think, to Gareth. Until then, you were looking at a sort of upward curve of progress, which we thought might end in a trophy in the Nations League, and then the next thing would be the Euros. Since then, um, there's been this rebalancing that both. Tom and Gregor have talked about. Um, there was a phase when he was getting Jaden Sancho in. Um, Hudson Odoi had played. Raheem Sterling was in great form. When it looked like England were going to continue down the route of attack, um, scored 17 goals without reply in the three games before lockdown. But I think along the way, Gareth has worried about um, the defensive side of things. Rightly, you know, I was, I was writing about it at the time, and you had to look at the, the, the Czech game, um, which was a sort of another example of a, of a mini collapse. I've got no problem with any of that in terms of process. And like Tom, I would trust in Gareth. But I think where we are now is that he's jumped back from trying to evolve England into being an attacking team to what served him so well at the World Cup, which was safety first. And since he's been England manager and for a number of years, there's been this glaring problem where the goalkeeper's not very good. Um, there's not a great generation of centre-backs and there aren't really any great controlling midfielders around. So his way of getting around that has been this 3-4-3. Three, three, and there's, all, there's lots of logic to that. The problem is we've now gone too far back into the defensive mode for England. And there's not a lot of time before the Euros. And creativity is exactly the right thing to be talking about. Because I think that I've got no, I've got no worries that England could go to the Euros 3-4-3 and they'd be obdurate and they'd probably do similar to what they did at the World Cup but to do to go further they are going to need to create a bit and and it's joining it all up I don't see anyone in midfield that connects the play at the moment and that might be personnel I was looking at Rhys James last night who did have a great game but Rhys James is flying down the right putting balls into the box and there isn't a striker there to to turn. Harry Kane has lost a bit of pace. He's not that striker that's attacking the near post anymore. Raheem Sterling wasn't on the pitch. He would be coming in at the far post if he was playing. So you had you had a player playing quite well creatively, but for what purpose? You know, it didn't fit with the rest of the system. And I think that's where England are at the moment. And the Grealish question, yes, Grealish isn't he's not messy, but he's somebody, I think, that 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 does offer something a little bit different in that um he can stand outside of the system 
and do something off his own initiative and maybe create something himself. And when you're looking at this, it not all fitting together, the system not working, that's when the yearning for that kind of player comes about. Because England at the moment, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's hard to see. I still don't see where he, he squares the circle between these really good forwards and the shortfalls in defence. And, and, and I don't think he's got enough time. I do like Gareth, but I'm, I'm beginning to worry that he's going to run out of time before these Euros. And England are going to go there still kind of half created as a team. I think as well, you obviously talk about those goal, those goal crazy periods in the last year or so, but there was also the, the Kosovo game, 5-3. And I remember watching that game and thinking, blooming it, we could easily concede five or six against Kosovo here. And that they're the games when, you know, and there were lots of people on social media last night remembering the Spain game with the great blistering counterattacks and the passing it out from the back. But I then went and had a look at the stats and Spain had 27 chances in that game and 73% possession. So I think it is fully understandable and that's why I'm so passionate in my defence of Southgate that, that he's reverted to this. I do also think that, you know, Johnny, Johnny, you were there and we all remember what a great time it was to be English. So perhaps it wasn't as fun for you. But at the World Cup, I do think it is slightly different now. He had that almost a 3-5-2 system which left Sterling and Kane a little bit isolated as the front two at times. And you do see that in this current system with three, you know, Mason Mount's a little bit closer to Rashford and Kane in this formation. So I, I think it's not quite, oh, we've just gone exactly back to 2018. There is a little bit of adaption there. But all I would say is, I mean, we've all we've all been excited. Where, where do we put Jack Grealish in? Because I don't think there's any idea that we can put Jack Grealish in in that central midfield too. Because there's also a problem of, in modern football, the kind of box-to-box central midfielder doesn't really exist at the moment. You know, maybe Jordan Henderson, maybe. But, uh, you know, that kind of create both creative, defensively-minded midfielder, central midfielder, doesn't really exist, which is why, on balance, you go you end up with a combination of Calvin Phillips, Declan Rice, Harry Winks, Jordan Henderson. Because your other option is what? Put Ross Barkley, Deli Alley. Jack Grealish in there who's going to leave you a little bit open and might try a little pirouette on the centre circle and you'll get counter-attacked and bang you're out of the Euros I, I, so, so where are there any names we can actually think of to put in there I, I, I could I could happily go for some Johnny what do you think no it, I, it's really hard it's spot on to talk about centre midfield and Gareth's trying to do the Chelsea thing he's got Steve Holland there who did it with with, with Conte but when they had 3-4-3 they had N'Golo Kante in, in midfield who can cover everywhere and and is an incredibly intelligent footballer, multi-purpose player. England just don't have anyone like that. And Gareth is plonking two sitting players in front of a back three, which is just not going to work. But but if you ask for names, Harry Winks was supposed to be the connecting player. Gareth talked about that four years ago. For whatever reason, hasn't quite emerged as that. And I am struggling. I'm struggling to think of who those different players are. Maybe, you know, Phil Foden looked like he might be developed as that type of player. And then as he's gone a little bit through his journey, it looks like he's going to be more of a, an attacking, almost a number 10 or really attacking number eight or even a wide player. So I, I, don't, have, I, I don't know what you think, Greg, from a player's point of view, how you solve this issue in midfield. But I, I can't think of a big name that's going to just come out and, 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 and help England um, from nowhere. I think it might have to be a, a coaching thing that solves this. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. I think that's, as I said, centre-half and centre-midfield are the two glaring sort of issues for England 
But so you know, there is part of you would say, why why don't they play to their strengths more? And you know, as I say, they have got their they've got so many options on the wing, and they've now got Calvert Lewin as a great backup to Harry Kane, one of the best centre forwards around. And it, you know, they're not really getting. You know, it seems like Rashford gets the ball and somebody's up up behind them and he's playing it back. I think something like forty of his fifty something passes in the the game before were backwards. I read somewhere, and. You know, it's not like it doesn't feel like they're getting released. They're not playing to their strengths. They're not dynamic. They're not forward thinking. It's always kind of when you're when you're playing with wing backs as well. That's kind of they're they're supposed to be the real main wide outlet. So it's difficult. I th the other thing with Grealish is that everyone you know Grealish is now the new kind of <laughs> the new poster boy for this. Like Gareth, we want some creative flair and a bit of fun in the team. Um, but even if you play him in the front three. Do, he does, you saw the kind of pressing that Mount does, something like Mason Mount does. I think the system now is more important than having someone of Grealish's talents in the in the in the starting eleven. That's true throughout football. He's plays for Aston Villa. You know, he's the, he's Aston Villa's most creative player, and I don't think there's probably a reason why, apart from the financial climate, why other clubs haven't gone out and spent the money on him because he's a bit of a luxury. So I, I don't think. I think even if we're talking about England having brilliant centre midfield players, brilliant centre halves, and are set on a system with three a front three, Grealish still doesn't get in it. Let's not forget that Harry Kane plays for Spurs. Um, you know, there's no indication who you play for is any relevance on your actual class. But um, listen, I think there is a way of solving it. The first thing I'd say about England is. Carl Walker said after the game against Belgium that it, we weren't really wing backs. It was a flat back five, two holding midfielders. They still couldn't stop Belgium having chances. So why are you playing that system? You know, what, what's the point in using seven players to block but the they goal? Won. And, they won. And, you, and, you, and you can't. Yeah, but they, they are fortunate they to have won. They're, they're fortunate you're, to you're have in won. the Euros, if we're in World Cup 2018 and we're all singing football's coming home, you know, Southgate, you're the one. Like, oh, 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 fine. I mean, maybe, you know, we live in this modern day age of social media and everything. Maybe Gareth should get on Twitter and put it to a vote. We can either no, go, listen. We, can, we can either go, we can go Kevin Keegan, Alex Ferguson will score more than you and we'll try and win 5-4, 6-5 and play Sancho and all the lads and just have a laugh. Or we can be solid and try and win it 2-1 score from free, free kicks and set pieces. But, but, you're, but strangely, that's, a, that's an approach which then relies on your worst players. So why would you do not, that? Why would you go they're in? They're not your worst you, players. It's prioritising yeah, a you're, system, you're, isn't no, but it? No, you're, you're, you're hanging your Mason hat on Mount a solid... Mason not a bad player. No, no, I'm not talking about the, the forward players. I'm talking about the players at the back. I'm saying if you go with a defensive approach, then you're banking on your defence playing well. And those are the worst players in the England team. So why would you rely on those? And you'd have to leave out one of Rashford. You're obviously not going to leave out Sterling. You could leave out Grealish. You, sh you probably end up leaving out Foden. So by that rationale, then you're then, if you're saying they're the worst players in your, in your framing, you're exposing your worst players. So in any in any no, sport, no, it's a I, like between... I say, I, I'd rather go and and try and score more goals than the opposition because I think that that is conducive to England winning the tournament. What was uh, the England uh, song? Uh, We're gonna score one more. <laughs> that. I mean, maybe that's the new anthem for Gareth Southgate's all attacking England. No, because because I, I I actually think that Jack Grealish does deserve to be in there because you know. Gregor remarks almost like putting Jack Grealish in the team is having a bit of fun, but it, but it isn't. You know, what he does on the football pitch is very considered. It is creative, 
but it's very, it's not like he's just there. You know, I heard the word Maverick used about him. I'm not really sure that's the case. I mean, he does what he does and he does it well. Um, like most attacking players, you know, no one, no one asked Riyad Mahrez to have more than one style of play or Iron Robin when they cut in from the left and score a goal or set up a goal. You don't have to have every trick in the book to be a creative player, but you can do your thing well. And Jack Greedish does. I'd play Sterling on the left, came through the middle, of course. I'd play Foden on the right-hand side. And I'd let, if I'm going to play Trent Alexander-Arnold, get the best out of him as well. He's not a great wing back, but he seems to have had a system that's worked with him in a back four, as long as the player ahead of him, Mohamed Salah, allows him to get round him. And that's by cutting in on his left foot. So why play an out-and-out winger on that hand side if you're going to play Trent? Otherwise, don't play Trent, you know, and play a more defensive player. Ben Chilwell can play left back. The, the Declan Rice can play holding midfield. I think Jordan Henderson can do the box-to-box thing. I think he's he's done it very well and covered for Trent Alexander when he goes forward very well. I'm not saying that I've got all the answers for the England team because I still think that team will concede goals. But ultimately, I think the way of winning the tournament is going to be able going out there, being able to score a few. Who's your two centre-halves? You've missed them. You glossed over them a little bit. <laughs> it's because they're the weak point. They are the weak point. I mean, at the moment, uh, a two. Let's put it that way. I don't think there's much <laughs> I don't think there's much between two, them. But, two but figures I think, but no I think, figures. But I think, look, Joe Gomez is not playing well and he needs to get his form back. But I think if Jordan Henderson's in front of him and Trent Alexander's to the right-hand side of him, then it has to be him because at least they've played 55 games together at least during the season and you can sort of pin your hopes on them having some sort of relationship, you know, and if Harry Maguire gets his form back, he'd play the other centre-half. If not, Michael Keane or, uh, to be honest, I wouldn't play Cody in a two. Listen, there's no, there's that, no doubt that, you are, but, but, you but are the that, voice but, of a nation at the minute, Hugh. There's no doubt no, about but, that. But, I'm not going to no, dismiss but, it. I'm not, taking, I'm not taking the mic. You definitely point, are like that, you are that, saying that, what a know, lot but, of people but, are but, saying. All I, all I would say is that as long as you and everyone else is all right when it comes to the Euros group stage, when the opposition are nicking the ball in midfield, turning, knocking it into the flanks where Ben Chilwell and Alexander-Arnold are miles forward, knocking it into the box Chilwell and going, forward. And going 2 nil up forward. and the headlines are sat clueless, you know, if, tactically... Yeah. You if you're know, happy that John McGinn I, I steals the ball, I wouldn't. plays it to Ryan Fraser, <laughs> slips it Lyndon Dykes... I'm happy with that too. But I wouldn't, but I wouldn't, <laughs> this is the thing, I would not push Chilwell forward because Sterling's on his side and I actually think one of the keys to Sterling playing well is that he is constantly making runs in behind and he is taking the ball and carrying it at their defence. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily play Chilwell to be honest. I, I, I think Kieran Trippier has done a brilliant job on the left. I think you could go back four give him a go there. Um, Chilwell's a really good player but he's another really attacking Fullback and and I know I I think it's I think it's their four three three is Liverpool's system, it's United's system when they when they've got a system, um, you know it's Manchester City's it's system. Like Manchester United system in terms of England success, we're in trouble, aren't we? Well, no, but you know Manchester. What I've been mean, flipping Manchester United achieved great stuff with the front three towards the end of last season. So everyone's playing it. I think you've got Jaden Sancho, one of the best talents in Europe you've got Mason Greenwood you've got um, you've got Sterling one of the best wide attackers in the world Harry Kane in the middle or Calvert-Lewin I, 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 I think what what Hughes Hughes points right that if you've why they've got a collection of bad centre-backs so why just put you know why solve that problem by putting another bad centre-back on the pitch go with two make them forget Harry Maguire coming out with the ball or whatever just choose your best two defensive 
centre-backs. I think Jordan Henderson can sit in midfield and then you go for two more creative options around. And that might even be trying Grealish as a, as a, as a number eight in midfield. Um, I think he's the misperception about Grealish that he, he lacks responsibility. I think he's an incredibly responsible player. He's captain Villa, he's grown up a lot. Um, but he might not work there. I, I think that's I think it's, that's a better route to try than than where we are at the moment. But as I said earlier, I don't blame Gareth for trying this. I know why he's trying this. I just think he's got to be big enough to accept it hasn't worked and go back to 4-3-3, which is what got, you know, the 17-0 in three games before lockdown going down the 4-3-3 route. I think, I think you know, except there's going to be moments, as Tom said, you get turned in midfield, you get counter-attacked and Holland score or Kosovo score. England aren't going to be perfect, but I think I think 4 is away. On Hugh's point about bad centre-backs, I, I, I get it if you're then going to play Michael Keane, Cody, Stones, whatever. But there is a way, I think, of playing a back three where it is a, it is a positive. You could play Tyrone Mings on the left of a back three, Walker on the right. Both of them have got good passing ability. You've got that left-right dynamic. They then become an asset when you've got full-backs pushed further, further forward. You've got midfielders who are marked. You've got two players on the ball. Like Kyle Walker has received a lot of criticism in the last few seasons. His distribution, when it's good, is very, very good. And Tyrone Mings in a similar way. So that, all I would say is, again, in the team Gareth, team back three, you know, mould, there is a way of adapting that where it isn't quite what Hugh's saying of your emphasising your weakness. Um, and I would also say in defence of Gareth, as an international manager, you can't, I don't think you can just say Liverpool play 4-3-3. Jurgen Klopp has his players every day of the week. Gareth Southgate doesn't have that in terms of being able to drill them and work them together and play them together. You know, the midfield will be a combination of players who play for different clubs and don't always play together. I don't think it's as simple as saying 4-3-3 works for a lot of other people. Let's make it work for England because at international level, surely as a player, you need time to work on systems. Klopp's system works because he's drilled it into them for for years and years. We could go on and on. That was meant to be a little throwaway question at the start of the pod. So um, I'm sure we're going to have to lose some subjects further down the line. There is still something to talk about. I know we mentioned defensive issues, very clear defensive issues with England. Lots of players, as we've already spoken about, out of form in that area, but really none more so than Harry Maguire, Manchester United's captain, sent off for those two yellow cards I mentioned after just half an hour. And it seems after the court case in Greece during the summer, psychologically, doesn't seem like Harry Maguire is there at the moment. Physically, clearly he isn't because he's not producing on the pitch. But is that more of a psychological problem? That's something that I think we'll find out in due course. But when do you think the right time is for his club manager, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Southgate to, to leave him out for his own good, really? I don't know. But personally, I think he should keep playing. I think he should keep going through it and keep, you know, uh, keep on trying to find what it is that he's he's lost at the moment. I know there's a lot going on uh, in his personal life, uh, and I've, I've felt sorry for him walking, seeing him walk off the pitch, and then, and it, you know, people are so easy to kind of like so quick to to kind of point the finger and start laughing, and you look on Twitter and there's all these memes about the blooming Mr. Blobby smashing into a studio like comparing him to Harry Maguire and things are like people have got no no kind of boundaries about where you can go with a footballer here and um, you know his life's been turned upside down so I, personally I think he should keep playing but I think it's down to him as well I think it's down to the managers having a conversation with him and saying like you know what do you want to happen here and I would say he'll say I want to keep playing so I would let him 
I think it's interesting. It's interesting to hear Gregor say, "Keep playing," because I think that I would say in defence of some areas of football and the media, I was slightly pleased to see that there was a there was as well as all the jokey reaction. There was a reaction last night of sympathy and people saying he needs a break. Matt Dickinson's written about it in the Times today. Um, so, so I was at least encouraged slightly in that there is also an aspect of where and this isn't a dig at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or Manchester United for once but it's just an unfortunate occurrence that had he been part of the Manchester United Sir Alex Ferguson glory days he probably would have come back from Greece and been kept out the side for a while um, you know or out of the spotlight a little bit but he, he he's club captain and probably the only decent defender in a side that is really struggling. So, you, you know, the, the, the chance to give him a break was probably a month ago. Yeah, or, or, or now. And then he's returning to a club in desperate need of points and form as their club captain and their only decent defender. So, I mean, but I, I'm interested in the idea of you saying keep playing. So, I mean, is that is that on the basis that if he then somehow is tough enough mentally to and gets a good performance in, that can change everything. Is that is that the logic behind keep playing? Yeah, I, I mean, what's the alternative? It's good. If he's left out the left out the team now, then it ramps up the whole conversation about Harry Maguire and his psychological state. And then when he comes back in, the pressure's still there. Uh, you know, the the thing is, we're saying all this, and we don't really know what uh, to what extent he is struggling. And if he's if he if that if he's asked that question, he thinks, I, you know what, I need to I need to come out. I need to. I need to take a couple of weeks just to get my head straight and, you know, find... <laughs> it's, it's so easy to say, you know, find, find your confidence again. There's no way of finding it without playing the game. That's why I'm saying that. So, but ultimately, it's going to be down to him and the manager should be asking him. It should be left in his his court, I think, now. Solskjaer should say, are you, are, do you feel, you know, there is no judgment here and forgetting, putting everything to one side about how bad we are at the moment and how much we need you. <laughs> how are you? You know, do you... Do you need to come out? And then it's it's hard. It's hard as well. That's hard to answer. Yes, but if Harry Maguire needs to answer yes, then he's he's got to be strong enough to say that. And if he and if he feels that the best way for him to come through this is and kind of get back on an even keel is to play well and help Manchester United win some games, find some semblance of normality in his life, then that, you know that'll be the decision that he should take. My 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 worry about that is he looks like someone that's struggling trying too hard at the moment. He looks like he's trying too hard to find that performance or find that moment that's going to sort of realign everything for him. And both bookings yesterday were ego bookings, ego tackles where, you know, he's made a mistake and he's overdoing the trying to make up for it and he's going in late. And and if you remember when he came back from from Greece, he wanted to be in that England squad that Gareth Southgate left him out of. He, he wanted to play. And I, I understand that because he's, He's desperate to to put things right on the pitch, all that kind of stuff. But I wonder if he needs saved from himself a little bit. I think the the issue of taking him out, of course, is while it might be the best thing for him, is Manchester United are struggling at the moment. You know, Eric Bailly's possibly got injured. We're not sure exactly what happened to him on international duty, but maybe another injury. Tu and Zabi's not ready yet. Um, Lindelof's probably in just as bad a crisis as, as Harry Maguire at the moment. Um, and then you've got Phil Jones. So I, I actually think Solskjaer has to play him. There, there isn't any alternative. But um, And then there's the, the there's a blow to the, 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 the ego if you do get left out because you're struggling. But he just looks like he just looks like he needs 
safe from himself at the moment. He, he, in an ideal world, he looks like a guy who'd have a break. What's the timescale on this as well, though? I mean, who knows how know. long this is going to go on, and, and, and it's always going to be in the back of his mind. It's going to be part of his life until it's concluded, so he's got to play, I think. I mean, what, what Fergie used to do, he was very good at this, was looking at the fixtures you know, a couple of months ahead, and he would say to players, right, first week of January, you get to go on holiday for a week. And sometimes that was enough. That promise of a break was enough psychologically to get them out of it. So I don't know, maybe Solskjaer does something like that. Hugh, you're a United fan. Do you, if I've said to you, Harry Maguire can miss the next few games and you might, you know, that that Callum Wilson scenario I envisaged the other day of him nodding in and you're losing to Newcastle. Would you take that for a re- re- improved and refreshed Harry Maguire in a few weeks? Well, look, the thing is, I have over the years... Obviously, as a younger person, I think you're so passionate about results. The older I get, you know, the more you're passionate about the welfare and health of people as human beings. If Harry Maguire's having a tough time and he doesn't feel like he can play, you know, it's fine with me if he doesn't play, to be perfectly honest. But what what I feel like is, I think Gregor's right, you need to sit down and have a conversation with him. But in Gregor saying, how long does it last? I think, you know, just a couple of weeks to refresh yourself. Even if you continue to train and you don't go away, you get to spend more time with your family if you're not going to games. Um, You get to have some conversations, frank conversations with yourself and those around you and maybe come up with a new resolve to get back on the pitch. You know, Harry Maguire for all of last season pretty much had a hip problem, which eventually was going to reflect in how he played as well. And we don't know how much that has affected his form. Um, but but certainly I felt at the time after the Greece thing that he should have, he certainly should have lost the captaincy. Um, because ultimately you say, Gregor, how long does it last? But there are conversations about Harry Maguire's form after every time he plays. So if he doesn't play, that conversation stops for a few days. If he doesn't play for a week, that conversation stops for a week. And you're right, there might be more conversations about his psychological um you know, the factor around his mindset. But I think all of those conversations slow down and the focus will still be on who has played and what the results are on the pitch if Harry Maguire isn't there. Now, ultimately, Man United need to put in some positive performances with or without him. Um, But from a human side of things, you know, I don't want him there under the microscope putting in bad performances if it really is something that's happening off the pitch. Like he needs to take time to address that, whatever it might be. I'm sure he could rely on his teammates at Man United to put in some performances that will distract <laughs> our attention one way or another. I mean, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan forgot Marcus Rojo, who, of course, can come to the rescue. I mean, there are players <laughs> there, there are players there. Listen, we could keep talking about this. We could keep talking about England, but we have to reflect on a couple of the other home nations. Scotland beat the Czech Republic 1-0 at Hamden. Steve Clark's side now unbeaten in their last eight games. It's their best run for 32 years. Calm down, Gregor. I'm going to get to you in a moment. <laughs> Jesus, smiling like a Cheshire cat already. Um, Look, clearly, Gregor, the format of the Nations League works for some countries. Happy? (laughs) I mean, I think that's doing Scotland a disservice here, Hugh. I think uh, to to, to look at the number of players they had out last night, uh, Robertson, Tierney, McKenna, Cooper, Christie, Fleck, Armstrong. In fact, most of the players who play in the Premier League so, you know, um, to have all those players out and I think actually we can connect one thing to the England conversation briefly is that there seems to be something has happened in the Scotland camp, which is a kind of bond, like a togetherness has been formed. And I don't know where it's come from. 
And I think that, I've got an idea around that. I think there's a diminished influence of old firm teams. There is less of an element of Rangers versus Celtic within the Scotland squad. A lot of players playing in the Championship and the Premier League, and not even, and no real clicks. In fact, Ryan Fraser spoke about there being no clicks, cliques, should I say, uh, in the Scotland squad. And I wonder whether that's just because a bit like we we spoke about England's midfield and players all coming together from different clubs. Whether there are a lot of apart from Celtic. Uh, and Rangers are a lot of clubs, uh, players coming from the single player coming from a club, if you do what I mean. Yeah, that's very possible. I also think a kind of growing in stature, uh, growth in stature of people like John McGinn and Robertson, who are like in the mid 20s now and leaders of the team rather than the kind of the guys, the young guys who just come in. Um, and we've got to give Clark some credit as well. I mean, you know, he had, he had a pretty tough start and. Now he's he's on he's from somewhere he's you know we've got three clean sheets I think Lyndon Dykes as well is kind of someone who signed from to QPR from Livingston for a couple of million quid in the summer we really knew very little about and the fact that he's a big powerful presence but quite dynamic and can run behind in behind as well has just transformed the dynamic of the team really um, so yeah I, I think. I think Clark deserves real credit. I don't honestly. I, there are a lot. I think it's there are lots of little little things that have contributed to this. And as you say, you know, part of it is the team dynamic. Part of it is Clark. I think he's just so kind of curmudgeonly and no nonsense. <laughs> you know, all the noise that goes around. He just, he just, you know, he just shrugs his shoulders and and goes, you know what? I don't care. You know, there was lots of talk about the system again. We, you know, we always pour over systems. Scotland playing three at the back seemed to be some kind of some kind of big great crime, but he just stuck with it, and he thought that was the best way for them to get results. And for three straight clean sheets, so yeah, onwards and upwards. I think that's a great description of, of Steve Clark. He's clearly a man who, um, you know, they used to say Frank Stapleton gets up in the morning, smiles in the mirror just to get it over with, and and, and then he can get on with his day. Um, <clears throat> but he'll do his own thing. He won't listen to anyone, and he reminds me a lot of Craig Brown. You know, when I was covering the Scotland team, um, it was a what now looks like a golden era, Euro 96, World Cup 98, and Craig was in charge. And what Craig, Craig played three at the back, but what he always did was, first of all, made Scotland horrible to play against, hard to beat, but he was also really good at just seizing on those tiny ways in which Scotland could score a goal or, or hurt the opposition. So, you know, I remember Craig Burley bursting on the scene as a, as a kind of goal-scoring midfielder. Craig just grabbed him, right, he's in the team, he's going to get us some goals. You know, he did that with Don Hodgson a couple of years later. He seized on those little things. And watching Scotland last night and, and the previous two games, Clark's starting to do that. And you know, Ryan Fraser playing sort of through the middle, using his pace, running off Lyndon Dykes, it's a little advantage Scotland can gain. Thinking a bit outside the box, absolutely brilliant. Playing McTominay at the back has, has, has really worked. You can pass the ball. Um, it's got the physical presence, but someone that can pass the ball out of defence. Um, I think another ingredient, I think Hugh, you're probably right about the, the it's less cliquey than before and that might be a lack of old firm thing. Um, I think it's also, Clark's opened the squad up to people who are there on merit. You know, Andy Considine from Aberdeen is 33, just... Brilliant story. Two games at the age of 33, two clean sheets when other players, you know, might have let the dream die and he never stopped believing, blah, blah, blah. But that Johnny, would you, thing- sorry to interrupt, Johnny, would you have had him in the team at any point? Because I was, I was, as you say, fascinated by the story of him, 400 games for Aberdeen. He's been there the whole time, you know, has he just suddenly got good age 33 or is it, does he fit the system or what? Why? why is he in the team? 
he's he's always been a good player, but he's always been somebody who looks like a really good, you know, Scottish Premier League player. Maybe not an international player, um, but somebody that wouldn't let you down. And what what he is is he's better than people like Grant Hanley, who you know were put ahead of him because they were playing in England. Quite honestly, not because of their quality. But w- would I have picked him? Probably not. I probably wouldn't have seen that. But but. Clark's been able to look a little bit beyond the club he's playing for, or the league he's playing in. He's done the same with O'Donnell, who's who's had a great few games for Scotland as well. Um, in Lyndon Dykes, as Gregor said, so there's there's a knack there, and again, it's a Craig Brown thing, just be, being able to spot something in someone, maybe character, consistency that that sort of sets them apart from the setting they've been playing in, and and make use of it. Just quickly, I think we've got to talk about Wales as well. Um, look, if Manchester United need a new boss anytime soon, there's Ryan Giggs, you know, club legend who could come in. Uh, the Wales boss leading his team to the top of their Nations League group without Gareth Bale, Aaron Ramsey or Joe Allen, their big three over the last uh, 10 days or so. He's probably doing a better job than I thought he would do, Tom. I think he definitely is. And one of the things I found interesting, I've watched a few of the last Wales games of late, is there are parallels in a very different way with what the chaps have said about Steve Clark in that he, he's found a, he, he's able to adapt his system slightly, but he's also willing to pick people maybe in positions that they're not normally used to. You know, Nico Williams is a young up and coming right back for Liverpool, as far as we're aware, Premier League fans. And then all of a sudden you find him playing as a right wing forward uh, in Giggs' system a lot of the time. Um, he's got a very young team as well. There's a lot of um, young, young, talented players in there. And I actually thought, I know they lost to England, and it sounds like I'm just, you know, bashing England for the sake of it. They actually played some quite good possession-based build-up play against England, and were undone by not being able to defend crosses, which is obviously something that he needs to work on. But again, it's a, it's a manager who has is willing to work with what he's got and get a good system and a, and a, and a way of playing. And again without wanting to go back and pretend I'm shoehorning in mentions of Gareth Southgate and finding a way to win at international level look at their results it's clean sheets all over the place 1-0 wins apart from the defeat to England I don't think they've conceded a goal in around six or seven, you know nearly six games so that is you know at international level that's some, there's a lot to be said for that and that's something I perhaps didn't think Giggs had in him that kind of tactical now and you know solidity I, I wondered whether he'd be a bit cavalier and just you know throw all the young exciting attacking lads on um, and you know hope for the best it seems he's a little bit more astute than uh, some people gave him credit for and again they all look like they want to be there they want to be playing for Wales and you know again and I didn't quite finish that about England there seems to be that that was a huge huge part of England's success two years ago it wasn't all about how they were playing it was it was the fact that the players had a smile on their face and the weight had been lifted from their shoulders and that seems to have sort of slightly waned a bit now for several reasons you know off pitch things the the little minor uh, scuffle scuffle in the camp between Sterling and Gomez you could even include that Um, it just seems to be that that's kind of slightly regressed a little bit now and there are question marks whether once there was like a good atmosphere that's not quite the same now and also the sort of uncertainty about how they're playing Whereas there's certainty, it looks to be absolute certainty in the way that both Scotland and Wales are playing now. And those two things combined, you know, I think play a big part in, in the sort of atmosphere in the camp. So very positive for both Scotland 
and Wales at the moment. Uh, two managerial geniuses in charge. So there you go. What else do you need? Uh, speaking of genius, our award-winning journalism. You can get more of it by subscribing to The Times, The Sunday Times. And you can also get one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, something we discussed at length in our last discussion was Project Big Picture. That's the proposal to bail out the English Football League and the FA with £350 million, but hand control of the Premier League, essentially, to the big six in the top flight. Well, that has now been rejected. Instead, all 20 Premier League clubs unanimously agreed to not pursue it, but to work collaboratively on a new way forward. There was, though... A further £50 million in funding for Leagues 1 and 2. Uh, before we get to what might happen next, Gregor, I know you were passionate about uh, those EFL clubs that needed support. It's good news for those in the third and fourth tier. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Oliver Dowden came, came out and said in Parliament that you know there was a, he'd been given guarantees that no club would, be go, would go bust. Uh, and we were like, where, where are they coming from? <laughs> and now we, that seems to be certainly in the in the kind of this season. That seems to be that those clubs are going to be safe now. Championship clubs aren't out of the water though. I mean, they have they have got enormous losses, bigger losses. They just have more wealthy owners, and that's why the Premier League clubs don't want to look at say the owner of Stoke City and say who you know are richer than many of the Premier League owners and say, why are we giving them money? So they're talking about structuring loans for the, for the championship. And I can see, I can see to some extent the reasoning in that. Um, so it's not completely signed and sealed, but it's certainly very positive. Um, uh, what it kind of, what it, what it's done, it's been, I think it's been a fascinating few days in that suddenly there is on the table, a discussion about how to support to kind of find to, for money to find its way down the pyramid um, and for redistribution of revenue, that was that's been the biggest issue in the game for for probably a decade, and it's back on the table. So the question for me now is like once this is, you know this is not over, this is definitely not over. The question for me is how do we get that? How do we obtain that to create a sustainable pyramid? 
what price are we willing to pay? So the the ceding control of 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 English football essentially to, to to six clubs was not a price I was willing to pay. It was a price all the EFL clubs are willing to pay because they're so desperate at the moment. Uh, but it's certainly, from my point of view, it's a good thing that this is this is dead in the war in its current form. But I want that. I, not just me. I think everyone in English football should want to see the success of the the Premier League shared down the pyramid. It should be looked, English football should be looked at as one organism, and when the Premier League is experiencing boom years as it has done, it you know the rest of the pyramid should should feel the the kind of the the fruits of that. So, what's the price we're willing to pay? Uh, listen, we could talk about that for hours. You're talking about morality in football and business in particular. And I'm not sure companies that make a lot of money into the tune of billions will be thinking about football as an organism as a whole. But I, we can come back to that. Uh, Johnny, you've written about this as well. Both Liverpool and Manchester United, who it seems initiated the plan, uh, speaking at a Premier League stakeholders meeting yesterday. And it's it's reported that they feel vindicated by what happened yesterday. Why is that? Well, I, I mean, I was reading Martin Ziegler's sort of inside story of what happened at the meeting with real fascination. And the bit that really grabbed me was how apparently easily Manchester United and Liverpool climbed down. Now, that just strengthens my... I mean, you know, without a whimper, um, Tom Werner and, and, and Edward, Edward Wood sort of went, OK, OK, we'll, we'll put big picture on the shelf and we'll have this review instead. And that just adds to my feeling this whole last few days has just been a, a massive gambit by them. You know, from nowhere... You know, since the weekend, we've now gone to having a review of the Premier League, which is going to look at more voting rights for the big six, more revenue for the big six, a whole lot of other freedoms that they want to bring in, like academy level recruiting, whoever whoever they want, um, TV deals, all that kind of stuff. Out of nowhere, that's suddenly on the table. At the same time, they've managed to divide and conquer the Football League. We're now separating off League Two and League One for rescue packages and putting the championship clubs right on the spot and saying, you're going to have to accept cost controls, um, wage caps, uh, fit and owner, proper fit and ownership tests, all that kind of stuff. It's been a it's been a master strokes by the by these clubs, and it was telling that John John Henry and Joel Glazer weren't at the meeting. The guys most behind this um, because there's no blood on their hands at all. They sent Tom Werner and Ed Woodward. They've sent Rick Parry out to bat for them. Who's taken the, the PR flack and they've sat there and, and, and without any reputational cost to them, they've suddenly got what they want on the agenda. And, and I think what's next, if that's what we're looking at now is a, a basically a haggle. How much of their agenda can they now push through? Because I think they're bound to push some of that agenda through. And that's going to have big repercussions for the championship because they're now isolated, I think. And for those other 14 clubs who are a bit isolated too. So it's, this has not ended at all. This is going to be a fascinating few few months of struggle. The Premier League say in a statement yesterday that um, their future plan and review will include the structure of the competition, financial sustainability, the calendar and governance. So plenty of things up for discussion. Gregor? Well, then I, have to, I, I want to throw it out to everyone. What what are we willing? This, that's what I said at the start. What what price are we willing to pay for what is still? I think you know it's it's hugely important. The, whether the, whether they're whether they're being completely honest with us or not, you know whether Henry and, and the Glazers are saying we want to see a strong pyramid underneath. We all want to see that. The the Premier League is was built on those foundations. I'd actually 
like it's almost taken a step towards a reunification of those of the Premier League and the Football League. That's what it seems to be like. You know, if if they're taking control, and the, all of the all of the wealth is pooled, and it's distributed from a central pot, you know, to, to a far more kind of equitable degree. That that's a positive for me. It's just what price we're willing to pay. And so I think you know I'd be willing to see two clubs fall out of the Premier League, so the free up fixtures. Uh, I'd be willing to see the League Cup go. I'd be willing to see the Community Shield go. The League Cup could be for football league clubs only. Uh, you know, if there's if there's issues about revenue, but you know, parachute payments gone. If all of it is is a central pool of revenue, and it's more fairly distributed, the question is, you can't let the power go. You can't let the power go into their hands only. You can let them have more, a, a bit more space in the calendar to go and play European fixtures and make more money that way. You could even possibly stretch the boundaries a bit in commercial terms they may make more money that way but there's no way they, they can get power that's the line in the sand for me Gregor I've long wanted a educated and sensible voice running the EFL and I think I'm going to start pushing your case because that's that sounds like a top plan to me I mean the, the, the thing to really stress here is from my point of view both as a uh, as a journalist who's a you know a keen on the football league but also as a fan this is n- not over so the, all, all this terminology around you know, dead deal and all this kind of stuff. This is actually just the starting point, and that's what people need to understand. Particularly Premier League fans, you know, oh, they, oh this 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 plan is over. As uh, Johnny said, this is just the start. There's an EFL meeting that's happening today, which will be very interesting in terms of where people stand, because there are lots of owners out there who, who I'm sure, even with the money only going to League One and League Two, who will be saying fifty million is not enough. That'll only take us through until next year maybe only take us through until Christmas that just you know wipe, wipes away some of the uh, some of the troubles that we've had since March so this really is the starting point and I really think people need to seize the opportunity and try and see it as a positive and try and be be more like Gregor be like be like Robertson be like uh, uh, you know but seriously take take the initiative of this moment and try and come up with um, a constructive plan going forward rather than just you know, get, getting the flares and the celebrations out that we've killed off this horrible idea. I think we have to add the European dimension um, that in the background there's a European, um, that, well, without calling it European Super League, there's a, there's a Champions League 2.0, there's a Champions League Plus coming down the line, and then there are things like the Club World Championship expanding. And that's where the, the, the big six are looking at. They, they want more freedom to explore and get revenue from those avenues and I think what's been exposed is that there's, there's really three different groups of clubs in English football now there's there's the little ones that just want to survive and when we talk about the emotive argument of saving our community clubs and so on we, we think of these ones the Rochdales the Oldhams the the Macclesfields and all that kind of stuff and then you've got the big six who are global players really and it's the it, 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 it's solving the problem comes down to what you do in terms of the ones in the middle the ones from, you know, 14, from 6 to 20 in the Premier League and the ones in the Championship and, and the couple in League One that are upwardly mobile. How do you, they're, they're almost the problem. How do you solve, how, how do you get something that's workable for, for the top and the bottom that also works for the middle and have mobility? And I like the idea of re, reunifying the leagues. I think that makes perfect sense and that allows you to to join things up a little bit more. Um whether that is actually what the big clubs want, I don't know. 
No, I mean, it, it, that, it wouldn't be a name, I'm sure, but just the, the, the fact that 25% of their revenue or the, or the, the revenue as a whole would go down, would go down the pyramid. It's essentially saying, look, you're part of us. We need, you know, we need, we need there not to be a big gulf between, between, as you say, the clubs falling out of the Premier League and the championship. The other thing, but the, the thing that, you know, I spoke to loads of uh, lower league chairmen this, this week for a piece to kind of gauge their views. And the one thing they kept coming back to, which is very important is they can't be allowed either to say we we can broadcast eight, eight of our own games a season because that devalues the the Premier League contract. So you know it's saying you're having twenty five percent of this, but it's you know of whatever it is three billion. It's not going to be three billion if each of the big six clubs are broadcasting eight games on their own platform every year. It has to be maintained as one as one contract. So they, by all means, see some of the kind of some of their their demands like more more space in the calendar go off and make more money playing in Europe, actually earning the money. Yeah, go and do that, that's fine. But if that's what it takes, if that if that's if that if that in exchange for fairer redistribution and making sure that there's still one club won't vote in the Premier League, I'd be happy for it. I don't know if they would. I think I think that makes sense in terms of you gotta preserve what makes the Premier League special. And and, and you know, the Premier League special, not because Manchester United and Liverpool are in some way more special than Real Madrid or Barcelona, and they might think they are, but they're not. That's that's not why the Premier League special. It's not them individually. It's a fact that Burnley versus Manchester United is a better fixture than Zaragoza versus Barcelona, or even that Sheffield United v Wolves is is better than um, I don't know Hoffenheim versus. Cologne, you know that that's what makes it special, and that's where keeping um, keeping the TV rights away from those clubs to market themselves is, is a must. And I think the, the the danger is letting these big clubs think that it's about them because it's kind of half about them, but it's more about the league. And anything that sells that would be selling what's special about English football. I'm just talking about the top flight now, but anything that sells that down the line. It's, the pre, English top flight had that specialness even before the Premier League, you know, the most competitive league around, and, and that that that's what I, that's the worry here that that's going to be lost along the way. I, I mean, I can only see it going an American route, and I don't think it's a coincidence to nationality of the owners and and whatever the. Uh, requirements to come into the Premier League might be. It seems like we go, may go down the road of other sporting competitions in that they're not just uh, sporting based and it might just be a little bit like, for example, the rugby premiership in terms of your ground infrastructure. For all we know, they could change it to your income. So only the wealthiest clubs are allowed to, to be promoted into the Premier League, you know, all those with over 35,000 seats inside their ground, for example, and unless you're a club of that size, you, you can't get in. And that would be dreadful for the English football pyramid as much as people might make more money under that system in the EFL. So I, look, I think we've got to be careful. It could go, it could diverge in so many different ways. Those people that like American sport know just how much the clubs control it and and it's my and it's down to the minutiae we saw what happened for example with Colin Kaepernick's career you know they would have the power to control individuals ability to to take part in the league and I think that would be dangerous as well you still need an overarching governing body not just for our country but uh, for Europe and the world as well um look before we go let's quickly look ahead to the weekend 
the club football is back so we can stop talking about Gareth Southgate and Harry Maguire. Well, maybe not Harry Maguire, in fact. Um, Merseyside derby coming up this weekend. Probably the, the mouth-watering fixture for fans. Everton, top of the Premier League, hosting the Premier League champions. This game rarely delivers, even when we build up to it as if it will. Um does anyone think this one is going to be different? I have my doubts. I mean, I, I really don't think, partly because I'm slightly worried that come Monday, if Carlo Ancelotti's pulled off a, a famous victory, I'm going to have to come on the podcast and make an even bigger apology to Everton fans than I'd, I've already done so uh, after my prediction that they would be dreadful again this season. I, I don't see it. I think given given the results that have happened, Everton being being particularly impressive, Liverpool off the back of Jurgen Klopp's most embarrassing defeat so far. It's got nil nil or one nil written all over it uh, for me, but I I, I, might, I might be in the minority there. I don't think Liverpool are capable of playing a nil nil game at the moment. Um, it's just just not where they are. I think it's going to be a great game. Um, this is the first time Everton have gone into this fixture not looking at damage limitation and trying to steal something for a long time. Maybe, maybe under Martinez were a couple of moments like that, but I think this is their time. This is their time to to take the initiative um, to try and attack Liverpool. Um, it, it comes at a great moment for Everton. And I think they will do it. I think Ancelotti um, will, he won't, be, he won't be gung-ho, but I think he'll be going out to win this game. I, I can't wait for it. James Rodriguez in this fixture um, you know, Dominic Calvert-Lewin on the form he's in against that Liverpool defence. Decore charging through the midfield. When you think of what Villa were doing to Liverpool. But, Liverpool, you know, Liverpool will, will hurt Everton as well. I think it's going to be a great game. And, it, and, and yeah, it won't be nil-nil, Tom. I, I really hope you're right. I really hope you're right. I just just think it's one of those classic build-up <laughs> ones where we'll all, I mean, given the restrictions that are being placed on the country, we'll all have to watch it because we'll have nothing else to do. But um, (laughs) I think we'll be disappointed. But I I really hope I'm wrong. I mean, the the other one that I'm excited about is Tottenham-West Ham because I enjoyed watching West Ham in their match against Leicester. I thought their tactics were incredibly effective, really interesting to watch how they set up. And obviously we've got the return of Gareth Bale and I can't wait to just watch... Spurs knocking the ball into his feet, him knocking it five yards in front and smashing the ball over the bar over and over again until about the 60th minute when Jose goes, right, come on, son. That's enough of that. You're not quite what you were. On on you on you go, Eric. On you <laughs> go, Eric. Eric Lamella. On you go, Eric Lamella. Let's try and see if we can get a point from this because West Ham have done a job on us. Sorry, I I'm just I'm in a, I'm in a particularly cynical mood today. Is it not the return of Moisey as well? Moisey, so like it's been successive wins and now Moisey will come back and they'll get beaten 5-0. Oh, the, the, oh. the one person in the country who should definitely be working from home at the moment, <laughs> uh, David Moyes. Um, Mikel Arteta taking on Pep Guardiola as well. Arsenal going away to Manchester City at the weekend. Will it be as intriguing a fixture as we had in the FA Cup towards the end of last season? Without a doubt, there's a lot on that one as well for, for, for Pep. Um, and... Uh, what's been brilliant about Arteta so far has been how good he's been at picking uh, game plans to to unpick individual teams, bigger teams maybe. And I'm sure he's spent a lot of time looking at and already knows those Manchester City frailties and will be going for them. One that I am also very interested in, Chelsea home to Southampton because Frank Lampard's had a bit of time to reflect on the first few weeks, which have been difficult in terms of his system, his starting lineup, who he plays, all these new players. And Southampton 
home to Southampton is the kind of fixture where it might be a bit boom or bust. We'll either see, oh, he's had the time to think about it, a couple of weeks international break to reflect, he's worked out what his best team is. Or Southampton with the players and the way they press and the way they look to attack. It could be, I think that one's a really interesting one in terms of the opening weeks of the season because whether Frank's going to have got it right or not. I'll throw another one in. Wolves versus um, Leeds. Cracker on Monday night. You've got Bielsa, um, who will pour forward, and you've got the ultimate counter-attacking coach in Nuno. And um, it's just going to be a, a, a coaching clash that I'm fascinated to watch. I'll throw in another two. This is going to be some weekend. I think, Le- <laughs> I think Le- Leicester Villa, two teams that started really well, and Sheffield United Fulham. Both need points. They're both like... Uh, they're, awful start and I think they desperately need a victory in that so uh, yeah what a weekend we're in we're, in we're all so excited Hugh are you as excited as us <laughs> I, I'm well, very excited <laughs> no I, I, I'm excited about the big game in Scotland this weekend uh, Dundee United hosting Aberdeen is going to be an absolute <laughs> yes <cracker>. Hugh yes <laughs> yes yes uh, we should mention the old firm derby um, Rangers against Celtic but simply because I think it's as close as the two teams have been in quality for a while. Um, I'm not going to call it a title decider or a six-pointer or anything like that. It's, of course, always a massive game in Scotland. But I'm just really interested to see if Steven Gerrard's side has made uh, as much of a, a step as many people are predicting they have. It's a great one because actually I think Rangers and Celtic were a lot closer last season than the league table suggested. And Gerrard has started the season really well. Um, he's got Rangers thinking like a big, big, big team again. And that's going to be crucial in that in that fixture. Whereas Neil Lennon's not had with the European flop and, and so on. It's just, it, it, he's now starting, the things are turning for him a little bit. And they are very close in quality. Um, those games are usually, um, you know, 400 miles an hour and I'm sure this will be no different. Um, but I find it a hard one to call. And... Um, yeah, the second best game in Scotland at the weekend, as you rightly point out, Hugh. But with no fans, the idea of an old firm game with no fans just kind of makes me. Are want they going to cry. pump in different noise than normal? Are they going to get specific <laughs> old firm fan noise? Because that is surely it's a different Vitriol. other than the yeah other than the usual. Come on, lads, we can score. It's got it's, they've got to adapt it slightly, haven't they? You want some real hissing when, you know, the right back goes to take a throw in by the touchline rather than just gentle clapping. You want to, you, I hope the audio, I hope the audio guys have been working hard this week. There was a good story about, um, about, uh, you know, I think all the kind of COVID officers going around the pub saying, you know, make you better be closed this weekend for this game. <laughs> and then I think they even went down to Carlisle across the border to kind of say that people might come that far and <laughs> just to watch the game because there's different rules and stuff. So, yeah, I think uh, it's going to be an interest, interesting weekend, interesting way to watch that game for anyone, just alone. If the sound guys are worth their salt, they've got a Scott Brown specific button just hit any time the ball goes near him or he makes a tackle. Um, look, I, look, there's going to be a lot for us to talk about on Monday. We'll also look ahead uh, to the Champions League games next week as well. But loads of great football coming back as club football returns uh, after the international break. Jonathan Northcroft, Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson, thank you for being with me. A reminder, you can subscribe to The Times and Sunday Times for more of the latest news from the world of football. Just search online thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you on Monday. Monday.
iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. 